The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. Lots of gratitude for Gabe and Shelley and Ramesh and Wynn who taught last week and uh, I think Ramesh and Wynn will be teaching again uh, maybe the second to last week when I'm out uh, teaching at IMS in early August. So how's the seclusion going? I mean, it's really nice to give ourselves permission. It, it's interesting. People can really feel guilty or feel somehow that it's inappropriate to sit down and to pursue or to uncover inner happiness when the world is the way that it is, or my life is imperfect in the way that it's imperfect. You, have you noticed that sometimes? It, it's almost like we need to remind ourselves that we have permission. It's actually useful for the world as it is useful for ourselves to really have that refreshment to turn inward and to touch into the joy of putting down the world. That's really this first set of four instructions. It's really about going beyond our worldly state of mind into a spiritual state of seclusion, retreating. The mind is literally retreating. doesn't matter if you're in the big city or if you're in the country. The mind is capable of retreating from its worldly concerns. doesn't mean that our problems have gone away, but we're taking some time to not attend to our problems consciously, intentionally, putting the problems of our lives and putting the problems of the world aside. So when we naturally will have to pick them back up, will be the mind will be more refreshed. So before I go into the talk tonight, um, some more conversation about the first four and then starting to talk about the second set of four instructions. Just any questions about the guided meditation instructions this evening that come to mind? Everything seem clear enough? And it's useful, like you don't have to do it as extensively as I did for the first few minutes. Um, where I reviewed, you know, I mentioned the first week, it it was a lot, but just to quickly review, because it's it's sort of a newer teaching here coming out of some academic research and some practice research of some of our wise scholars and practitioners, that the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness was more, less about telling us what to be mindful of. Thanks, Leslie. I was going to ask somebody to do that. Less about what we should be mindful of and more about a correction of view so mindfulness, the natural 
um, capacity of the mind, the heart to be present, can express that natural talent to be present. And what do we have to do? Well, we have to correct habits of viewing things in the ways that we view things. We view things in a way where we're enchanted by phenomena. We see things in terms of beautiful and ugly. But that's not actually helpful. Nature ultimately isn't beautiful or ugly. It's just the way that it is. So there is a particular reflection, which you may or may not want to do, but the image that I mentioned in the guided meditation that's useful is just to remember that as we look or open to the body and open to the breath, moving in the body, it's not special. It's like a big bag of ordinary seeds, a great diversity of different kinds of seeds. It's neither beautiful nor ugly, but they're different. And this is what I meant, too, when in the guided meditation instructions, to respect what a shift it is to encourage the mind to be interested in something that's ordinary. I hope some of you read, or many of you read, that article, that chapter in uh, Venerable Semedo's book, Now is the Knowing, which is one of the better titles of a book, I think. Isn't that a great title? Now is the knowing. He writes in that chapter, it's the second chapter on Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing in and out. That's what that word means. The rhythm of our normal breathing is not interesting or compelling. It's tranquilizing. And most beings aren't used to to tranquility. Most people like the idea of peace, but find the actual experience of it disappointing or frustrating. They desire stimulation, something that will draw them them into itself, themselves. With Anapanasati, we stay with an object that is quite neutral. We don't have any strong feelings of like or dislike for our breath. Right? And one of the biggest habits in our mind is to ignore neutrality. And it's, you could see why it's really useful in terms of survival. Like if we're being hunted by a predator, or if we're hunting or gathering food, or just sort of going about the business of survival, the mind that externalized attention, right, we want to ignore all the neutral stuff, the stuff that's not essential to mating and eating and being killed by a predator. We ignore it. So we have this deep, habit, probably even genetic, I mean, we can train the mind to be interested in the ordinary, but it's really overcoming a lot of habit energy. And that's why we use it. And I'll get to that in a minute, I think. Um, And just note the beginning of an inhalation, its middle and its end, and then the beginning of the exhalation, its middle and end, the gentle rhythm of the breath, being slower than the rhythm of thought, takes us to tranquility. We begin to stop thinking. But we don't try to get anything from meditation to get samadhi or jhana, the deeper states of concentration, because when the mind is trying to achieve or attain things, rather than just being humbly content with one breath, 
then it doesn't slow down and become calm. We become frustrated. A little later he talks about um, Ajahn Chah calling this earthworm practice, earthworm knowledge. Ajahn Chah calls it earthworm knowledge. It doesn't make you arrogant. It doesn't puff you up. It doesn't make you feel that you're anything or that you've attained anything. In worldly terms, the practice doesn't seem very important or necessary. <coughs> and this is sort of, we have to pass through this part of the practice. The practice becomes completely life-altering, transforming. But first we have to be willing to be intimate with what is profoundly ordinary and pushes the buttons of our mind because we are interested in intensity and excite what's exciting, what's provocative. And we have to break that because that tendency is always towards the construction of the mind. The intensity we get is from, I construct some exciting possibility for me tonight, and then I'm excited. Or I construct something terrible that's happening in our world, or, and then I get, it feels intense, it feels exciting, it feels dangerous, it feels like somebody's got to do something. I feel, a lo- I feel enlivened by the intensity of my mental, excuse me, constructions. And then, we don't see this, imprisoned because of the addiction to the intensity of our mental constructions. And we live in that world almost all the time. And then when we take up a practice like mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha is asking us to do a radical thing, which is get comfortable with what's ordinary. And he likens it, I really, again, recommend the chapter in Now is the Knowing. It's a short chapter, maybe 10 pages. Um, Ajahn Sumedho likens it to a baby learning to walk. The baby falls a lot when it learns to walk, you know, and it holds on, it uses crutches like the phrases or some modified version of the instructions from the Buddha that you can just drop in those meditative phrases. You know, like the first instruction is just sort of like, valuing mindfulness. That's really when, you know, sitting down, establishing mindfulness to the fore, finding a quiet space, establishing mindfulness to the fore. It's like, it's like what you want to drop in your mind. Like, I value mindfulness. I value present moment awareness. Like, that's what, that's actually your mindfulness object. Having, you know, breathing in high value present moment awareness. This is relevant to me. This is something I care about. Breathing out. I value mindfulness. I care about being present. And the breath is just a support for acting on that value, that intention. Like our, It's like our life preserver. You know, I want to be aware this is how it is. And I'm going to use the breath. And then, okay, so let's challenge. Let's, let's see if I can track. So I have to loosen the grip on really valuing mindfulness because now the mind has slightly more subtle work to do. Tracking the exhalation from beginning to end. Tracking the inhalation from beginning to end. 
having enough continuity. This, this doesn't take a lot. I mean, it's not like you have to sort of penetrate into the experience of breathing in or out. You just have to have that light but continuous presence enough to know, oh yeah, that was a relatively long or short or relatively rough or relatively smooth. See, it's not about long or short. It's about tracking it, that non-distractedness, the not forgetting it. And it's not that long. I mean, how long is an exhalation? Don't think about like the whole breath. That's too much. Just a half of a breath, just one out-breath or one in-breath. Can there be enough continuity to really, oh yeah, it was like this. That out-breath was like this. Like this, that in-breath. And then we're really getting the taste, the initial taste of seclusion. Because to track it, just to know one out-breath, one in-breath, one out-breath, one in-breath with enough continuity, the mind has to shed a lot of interest in the rest of the world. You know, the, whatever the mind is mostly obsessing about. And those, all those tendencies to think about what I'm going to eat when I go home or what I did earlier or what that person said to me or what Trump did or, you know, all those things that might have the tendency to come, they're going to, you know, that about to, that little, charge. It's going to present itself in the mind. So many, many, many times as you're tracking the in-breath, the out-breath, the in-breath, the mind, there's going to be that like, hey, look at me. Right? That's going to happen many times for each in-breath and each out-breath. Not just like one time, but many times there will be little impulses to turn the attention away from the in-breath or the out-breath. And so there's a intentional uh, forced. No, no, honey, I'm looking at this. I'm doing this. This is what's relevant. This is what's important. Tracking the in-breath, tracking the out-breath. And remember, you could do this. The in-breath, out-breath is just a convenient mechanism. You can do this with hearing. You can do this with whole body awareness. This particular process the Buddha lays out, it has a really beautiful integrity to it. So let's just use it these 16 steps, right? But the underlying principle is important. So for the second step, the underlying principle is like developing the talent of, of non-distraction or not forgetting. Right? It's the tracking of or the continuity of present moment awareness means sustaining non-distraction for a little bit and then sustaining it for a little bit and then sustaining it for a little bit. And don't worry if you lose it. Because then you just go right back to, okay, the next in-breath. Just like, let me comprehend what that's like. Next out-breath. Let me just comprehend what that's like. So here, like if you're going to drop in a little meditative word to, as a support, maybe the word tracking or not forgetting could be a good word for some of you. Or you'll come up with your own word that sort of fits the particular skill set that's getting developed or talent, muscle, mental muscle that's getting developed. Right? And then the third instruction is really as the mind is beginning to relax with the continuity, then we're teasing out unnecessary effort. And as we tease out that effort to exclusively notice the in-breath and then exclusively notice the out-breath, now we don't have to make that effort, so 
then the mind just naturally recognizes that. turns out that everything is here in the present moment. So as I'm naturally aware of breathing in, I can be aware of the whole body. Because the whole body is already here in the present moment. It's not like I have to do something special to be aware of the whole body. It's just noticing that the breath, the present moment is something that's inclusive. Does that make sense? And that's something that's a specific, it's like an insight, realizing, you're realizing something about the present moment, that it's inclusive, and the way you operationalize that is by recognizing the whole body, the inclusivity of the whole body. Embracing, connecting, opening, allowing, whole body. To be what it is, the great expression of sensation, subtle and gross, pleasant and unpleasant. And it really has a sense of something spreading and a, a, a willingness, a curiosity. Come on in, you too, yes, this too, like the little corners of the body that we tend not to want to feel because it's numb or it's unpleasant or it's hard or it's achy or whatever. No, 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 you too, this too, this too. So you can, you know, some phrase like that, like this too, whole body. But it has a really generous feeling, this third step. Because we're understanding the the very nature. It's like awareness isn't something. It isn't like a spotlight, which is more like the second step, but like a spotlight that I I shine on something, like the in-breath, and then I shine it on the out-breath. It's more like the space, the very inclusive space. And everything's in that space. There's no other space for things to be. So the whole body is in this space. It's not like I have to look. I just need to recognize something about awareness that it is inclusive. It doesn't make distinctions. And then the fourth instruction is to notice that has a healing effect on the body. Breathing in, right? So one trains oneself while breathing in, experiencing calm in the body. And training oneself is breathing out while breathing out, experiencing calm in the body. And again, it's a sense of spreading that healing effect of an inclusive awareness of body. So interesting how, uh, you know, often our strategy, like given that we're embodied, often our strategy, I mean, we have sort of a couple different strategies that dominate our lives. One is having an adversarial relationship with the body, you know, feeling betrayed by it, punishing it, you know, being sort of the, um, I don't know what the right phrase is, but sort of driving it or having high expectations, taking advantage of it, And the other basic strategy is forgetting it, denying it, hiding from it, disconnecting from it. So this is this fourth step is a powerful integration. I think I used in the guided meditation instructions a harmonizing 
But it's more intimate than harmonizing, at least that, the way that word means for me, what that word means to me. Right? It's, it's a real uh, um, yeah, healing of separation is the, the sense for me. Like the body and mind have, have this profound um, kind of uh, connection, <laughs> embracing. Can't really, you know, the body and the mind apparently, you know, it, it seems to me they're different, but now they're in this, the mind is in this embodied state, and the body is infused with mind. And so waking up to this and really, um, in a way, grounding or owning the reality of body and mind, the marriage of body and mind, the integration of body and mind. And it's very healing, as, and it's expressed as a kind of surprising calm. Because this calm doesn't mean you don't have physical injuries. It doesn't mean your back doesn't ache from some chronic condition you have or some injury you've had or your knee doesn't ache or you're not too cold or too warm. It, those kind of grosser expressions of the body are still there. But what's more interesting and what's getting highlighted because of attention, because the Buddha, starting with the third instruction, is asking, you know, that's with the third instruction, the Buddha the translation is one trains oneself, right? That's not there in the first two instructions. So the first instruction I'm suggesting, and Venerable Analio suggests too, is not actually what the sort of text has as the first instruction. It's that first opening statement, you know, where you go into the wilderness, to the foot of a tree, to a quiet building, quiet hut, and you establish mindfulness to the fore, right? That's, I think, a useful way to think of that. Because then the, what's actually often listed as the first and second, you can think of as the second, which is breathing in a short, one knows I'm breathing in a short breath. Breathing out short, one knows I'm breathing out a short breath. Breathing in long, one knows I'm breathing long. Breathing out long, one knows. Think of that as just one, like tracking, uh, developing the non-distraction, developing the not forgetting. That's the second. And the Long and short bit is just a particular mechanism that can help you with the not forgetting, with the tracking, with the non-distraction, the continuity, right? And then with the third and fourth, and for there on, the Buddha says one train. So we're really working with intention. So the, the exclusive part of the third and fourth instruction is that we're using with a particular intention to recognize the inclusive aspect of awareness. So the mechanism for that is whole body awareness, to kind of see how I can be aware of breathing in and the whole body is right there in the experience. I can be aware, I cannot forget that the breath is going out, but also be aware of the whole body because it's all here in the space of the present moment. It's not, it's not like two different spaces. Here's where the in-breath is, and here's where whole body awareness is. 
they're in the same place. So we're intending to recognize that inclusive aspect of present moment awareness. And with the fourth instruction, the mind, one trains oneself, one's intending to notice the healing, the calming of that inclusive presence. Because there's a whole thing, and I'll I'll talk, yeah, maybe I'll read it now. But there's this whole thing in the tradition. Um, I really love the teachings around papancha. Even the word papancha is great <laughs> as a Pali word, right? Because it sort of sounds. What's is it? On, onomatopoeia. When a word sounds like what it means, yeah. Papancha has sort of a feeling of sounding like a, a mind that's bouncing around, right? Mental proliferation is one translation. But uh, some of the more technical definitions of papancha is this diffuseness or differentiation where the mind, right, so this is at a grosser level of mind, conditioned mind, where it's really dependent on sort of the naming, the seeing different things, right? Because my mind, like in this moment of being aware of the visual experience, my mind could be very caught up in the diversification. This is Helen, right? That's Tina, that's Shelley, there's Gabe over there, there's Zenzele over there. So there's, you know, there can be this. And then the mind is, it gets imprisoned by the construction of this as a diverse, as a, you know, all these different things. And on some level, that's true. Right on that relative level, cushion, sentient being, floor, another sentient being with a different name and a different shape and form and a different sort of, I have a different package of information about that person. So with the third instruction, we're training ourselves to see the totality of the present moment, the in-breath, the out-breath, the whole body, And then the fourth instruction, we're training ourselves to notice that that more whole, inclusive connection with the present moment is healing. Because the mind, it's because what's not there. That habit of the mind to diversify experience according to its perceptions, its labeling, its naming of phenomena, that effort to distinguish this from that is being quieted. It's not being asked to do its job. So that part of the mind that does diversify doesn't have to do that. And that's nice, right? Because there's more of a unity of the mind. Yeah, Charlie. It's, I, I missed... But I miss I miss some of the words you said. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how much momentum the seclusion has. Sometimes, where we've had a lot of success in naming the hindrance to sort of 
support a clear recognition, oh, it's just that, uh, although that might be really useful and even essential, sometimes when there's enough momentum, just remembering the inclusive and the pleasant, the inwardly pleasant, healing, calming sense of that inclusive awareness is enough. Maybe the hindrance isn't actually a hindrance. Maybe it's just part of the totality of the present moment. But because the, the mind had developed the talent to specifically identify hindrances, because they have plagued the mind when it's in a different place, like a more gross or a more worldly place, and we really needed to isolate it as a phenomena. Oh yeah, that's greediness being known, right? So then that habit, that good wholesome practice habit, is good when the mind is at a particular frequency, but not skillful when the mind is at a different frequency, right? When the mind is in a different place. And so as I mentioned that first week, and I know last week you talked more about the hindrances, um, but in a way we're only moving through these 16 steps when the hindrances are slightly, or mostly rather, at bay, kind of in the background. And then when they come into the foreground and the mind is being tormented by its aversiveness, its fear, or by its greediness, or by its sluggishness, or restlessness, or plagued by doubt, then we're kind of shifting into another gear, right? Where we're sort of the good parent comes into the room and uh, it recognizes that things are a mess and the heart's being tormented and this will not do. Right? Because I care. And I know what this feels like. It feels like this. Being tormented by greed, anger, and delusion, by too much or too little energy. It feels like this. It looks like this. And then we basically do what we have to do. And if that doesn't work, we do something else. Because there's nothing worse than just letting hindrances have their say. So even if, like that last image the Buddha gave, this is a whole different set of instructions, but crushing mind with mind. I mean, even if you have to get in there and struggle. Some of you were at Joseph Goldstein's um, talk on Saturday. And I let's see if I can remember the context. Maybe you can help me win. But what was the story he had? Oh, that's right. He had I decided to get some... He was on retreat, self-retreat, and he had a little back problem. He decided to have a... Somebody fix it, and it really threw him off. But the important point he was making is a lot of judgment, self-judgment came in. Like, how could you be so stupid? Why didn't you just work with your minimal physical discomfort instead of you know leaving your retreat, getting this chiropractic work, and really screwing up your body in a deep way? I think he said it lasted for a long time. What, three years? Was that what, three years? <laughs> so he really did. Anyway, but what was interesting about that very strong pattern in his mind, how could you be so stupid? And then the mind would just go off. And he really saw it many times. But as soon as it came and as soon as he saw it, it wasn't enough. The momentum of spinning, of believing, getting seduced by that thought, how could I be so stupid? So at some point, right, it was a little bit, as I heard it at least, mind-crushing mind. Like some force arose in his mind like, I'm not going down that road of thinking, how could I be so stupid? It's not helping. And he got 
he, the sort of fierceness of the compassion rose up to such a degree that it was there to meet it as soon as the mind started to think one more time, how, even before he got through the word how, he was like, no, we're not, you're not going to do that. I do that when the cat is about to scratch on one of our nice pieces of furniture, you know? It's like, I can have a very fierce, no! <laughs> it's like, because it's unacceptable. You know, if you're going to live in the house, if you're going to be a domesticated, I mean, I don't know if cats are really domesticated, but if you're going to play this game of being domestic, pretend that you're domesticated, you're not going to scratch that couch. And it, it stopped. It doesn't scratch the couch anymore. Only a chair we're okay with it scratching. <laughs> sort of okay. We planted a scratching post right in front of the one piece of furniture. It still seems to think it has permission to scratch. And we need that power, you know, with the hindrances. But we also need to drop it when it's too much, Right? Because a lot of times when the system, the body-mind system is more settled, we don't need to sort of be that parent who sees the hindrance, right? In fact, that also can be included. The hindrance can be included, and the tendency to respond to the hindrance can be included as just part of the totality, breathing in, whole body, whole world, whole experience the healing of that, the unity of that, the joy of that unity, the ease of that unity. That's training number five and number six in the second set of four instructions. Yeah. So let me read a little bit about proliferation because I think as I was, papancha again is the word, this tendency towards expansion and differentiation and diffuseness. Not expansion in the sense of an expanded state of consciousness like we use sometimes with the divine abodes, like compassion practice, where it really has in our heart, in our body and mind, this sort of this vast, immovable, like the love is actually ready for this world. You know, like... That also has an expand, but this is sort of like proliferation. A one thought, like that's what Joseph was talking about. If he got through that first idea, how could I be so stupid? The mind, it would be one thing after another, endless expansion, proliferation. Yeah, just keep. Hmm? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's really, it's actually not much we can do once the mind has lost its footing in the present moment, then it's sort of, the mind is literally not aware that it's lost, so it can't practice. So it isn't until somehow the suffering gets intense enough that the pain of it wakes the mind up. What the hell's going on? Why does it hurt so much? You know, and then, and then mindfulness has the possibility at least of re-emerging. This is from a wonderful little book I recommend all people into the Buddhist teachings have in their book stand. You can get it for free online, um, downloadable, so you can put it in your e-library. Um, and it's called The Buddhist Dictionary. Anatolika? No. Uh, oh, 
I'll send out in the email that I'll send out the link for it so you can get it. Anybody? Taloka. Taloka. Anyway, a Western monk put it together. One, one of those Westerners who practiced in Sri Lanka, a whole crew of them went over in the mid-1900s and a Buddhist dictionary. I'll send out the link in the email. Anyway, so under Papancha, this is what it says. He's just quoting from some of the suttas. One delights in the diffuseness of the world. So he's talking about worldly folks like ourselves. We delight in the diffuseness of the world, right? The proliferation of our mind. But sages are free. Their minds are free from such diffuseness. So it's kind of an interesting contemplation. I think there's a little skillfulness in imagining the mind of a sage, of a wise person. And like these little tidbits we get from the Buddhist discourse. Like, for example, being peaceful no matter the conditions. That's like a provocative contemplation. Being peaceful. Not peaceful when the conditions are really nice, but no matter the conditions. What is peacefulness? How, how would that express itself in my mind and body when conditions are like this? When conditions are like this. So here's another little tidbit to practice as we imagine, right, aim or imagine what would it be like to be a wise person. So non-diffuseness. So it's like I'm not forgetting the unity. Not afraid of diversity of experience. Not failing to recognize difference between this and that. But not losing unity with the diversity. And you can kind of even sense like, like the totality of the present moment. We can sense the wholeness, the totality of the present moment, which would include sensation and sight and sound and emotion. Everything, right? Everything here and now. But that it's all here and now. So that's the non-diffuseness. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho has a nice teach little teaching about this absence of papancha. And the handout that I'll send out in the email, it, it, it has this term, ikagata, which usually gets translated as one-pointedness. And we misunderstand it as a kind of a focusing on one thing. But stillness, real stillness, real one-pointedness is this unity. It's this point that he says includes everything. Like the present moment as an object of awareness is an inclusive object. There's nothing outside of it. And that's a useful thing. Like it still can have that sort of idea like, yeah, there's not like I'm not, it's an exclusive attention, but it's an exclusive attention on the totality or the unity, everything's included, everything's allowed. Nothing has to be outside. And you really get a sense with this understanding of awareness how it relates to love and compassion. Because right? isn't that the very nature of love and compassion? Like not excluding, not nothing outside. Nothing has to be left behind or rejected. This Dhamma is for one who delights in non... So this path, right, is for one who delights in non-diffuseness. It is not 
one, it is not for one who delights in worldliness. So worldliness is actually a synonym for papancha, for this diffuseness. Right? So when we say, like we do, like it's kind of a technical term in Buddhism, that worldly mind, I'm a worldly person, it means that my mind is obsessed, is caught up in the diffuseness, in the likes, my likes and dislikes, in the differentiation of my experience. I'm not in touch with the inner calm, the inner joy, the inner release or ease, the inner happiness of unity. And that is the only thing that inner happiness is absolutely essential to wake up and to be a good human being. Because otherwise we're a frightened human being. We're frightened by the experience of, di- of diversification or diffuseness, the pleasantness and unpleasantness. We're literally pushed around and tormented by it. And we're really not good for anybody or not uh, that useful for anybody else, let alone ourselves. So the only way to sort of show up in this world in a way that will make a difference is when there's enough inner calm, and and it's just the maturing of happiness. So just the basic healing, having a healed relationship. This is the first stage of inner happiness. Having a healed relationship with the totality of our present moment experience. How do we know we have a healed experience? we're willing to include it, right? We're not obsessively separating ourselves out from the present moment. So there's a healing there. We call that calm. And there's some lightness that arises out of that. We call that joy and rapture, not having to separate. And then there's a healing, a deeper healing of the heart we call Sukha is the Pali word ease. I like that word best. It has kind of a visceral sense to it. So it's a nice word for that kind of inner happiness. And then, now I'm in the second set of four, which is aware of the activity of the mind, experiencing the activity of the mind, quieting the activity of the mind. And we'll spend time next week with the second set of four. So again, the second set of four instructions, we're working with intention, All the way from step three to step 16, the last, it's a training, staying with an intention. So with the second set of four, it's the intention to notice joy, the intention while breathing in and out, the intention to notice ease, a more resonant, deeper kind of happiness, the intention to notice. So from the point of mental ease, contentment, now we can actually observe mental activity. Because the relative calm, joy, and ease creates a refuge, a place to rest, so I can observe no mental activity without feeling tormented or seduced by it. It's just mental activity being known. And because now I'm observing, and what's mental activity? Well, that's perceiving things and having a feeling about the perception and having mental content, mental content, right? So those are the different parts of mental activity, the main parts. 
attention, the mind is attending to, which is, relates to perception and the feeling and the content that arises around the perception. All that happens together, right? But I'm just sort of different facets of what we call mental activity. We're just letting mental activity do its thing. So a lot of dispassion with mental activity. So we talk about the second four instructions as a happiness of dispassion, just like we talked about the first four as the happiness of seclusion. Right? So the happiness of dispassion requires some joy, some ease, so we can observe mental activity without being pushed around by it. And because we're observing it without being caught in it, it quiets down. Because what feeds mental activity, proliferation, is the identification. It's me talking to me. These are my thoughts. Right? We're seduced. We're identified with the content as opposed to thinking mental activity as a natural process that doesn't really actually refer back to anybody. It doesn't. It's there. It's real, obviously. Thoughts are real. But they're really just something being known, and that's it. That's what a thought is. It's something being known. If it has an emotional charge, it's also something being felt, known and felt. And that's it. And there, there's a lot of that understanding in the dispassion. And that's a particular kind of happiness. It's the mind realizing the mind when it's not imprisoned by its thoughts, by the meaning its thoughts construct. The, the thoughts are still there, and in a sense, they're still making up meaning. But that's okay. Because the mind has a dispassionate relationship with mental activity. So you see, the important thing with dispassion is you don't have to get rid of thoughts. The mind is realizing, I don't have to have a problem with thoughts. Yeah, it's nice when it's quieter, but I don't, I'm not confused by them. Because I have this wisdom of dispassion and it feels really nice. It's a particular kind of inner happiness. It's really the maturing of that calm, joy, ease. And then the quiet is really the quiet of dispassion. More than, I mean, the thoughts do quiet down when you're not, we're not identifying with them. But the real uh, happiness is dispassionate, a dispassionate relationship with mental activity, which just happens to quiet the thoughts down because it's the intense or the identification, uh, passionate relation to the thought that feeds them, right? it propels them. So what I, uh, I sent out last week, so if you haven't read it, is this nice article by Andy Olensky, Andrew Olensky, uh, article that he had in Tricycle not too long ago, Keep It Simple, The Gift of Awareness. And he writes a little bit about Papacha at the beginning. And it's really useful. He talks here, which I think is relevant to the 16 instructions, about the usefulness of sensation to break the spell of proliferation. And this goes back, because the first four instructions are really about breaking the spell of proliferation, papancha, right? Like making the mind, training the mind to be with sensations of breathing in and out, sensations of the whole body. 
and to really embrace, to really connect, to be intimate, to sustain. It really, it's like two loyalties. We can have loyalty to the meaning our thoughts are constructing, or we can have loyalty develop, train the mind to have loyalty to the ordinariness of sensation. But it's a real little death. And there's a real rhythm you'll see with each set of four, the happiness of seclusion, the happiness of dispassion, the happiness of cessation. We'll get there in the next four weeks, which is the cessation of selfing, I-making, mind-making, and the happiness of liberation, the kind of integration of that insight of of no self or um, no selfing is probably a better way to say it, the sort of maturing of that insight. So that's the sort of development of happiness or release, right? But each set, we're kind of setting something up to see through it, right? So, you know, by training the mind to be with sensations of breath and whole body, it's like we're really, there's a setup like this choice between mental proliferation and just being with the breath and body, right? And to sort of realize that that can be put aside. And then it's like attachment uh, or it's like on a more subtle level, seeing the, like on a more subtle level, what's relevant about mental activity is the feeling, the, the pleasantness or unpleasantness. The recognition that there's still pleasant and unpleasant but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bother with it. Still pleasant and unpleasant in the second set of four instructions, right? Because you're observing mental activity. The dispassion is because every thought we have is either pleasant or unpleasant. I think about going home, you know, it has a particular feeling to it. I think about the sensations I'm having right now with my one ankle pressing on the other ankle. Yeah, there's a particular feeling there. Every time I, even each person, there's a little feeling about each person, right? Every experience has a feeling. And the dispassion is particularly about the subtle aspect of mental activity, which is the feeling. We often think that word feeling, we, we, we uh, generally think about more of a visceral feeling. And it does relate to that, but it's, it's really the idea that it's pleasant. It's a conclusion. It's a mental conclusion. Oh, that's pleasant, or that's neutral, or that's unpleasant. And so the second four is really we're setting ourselves up to look at feeling and to to just let it be feeling. It's just that process of feelings coming and going, and they keep coming and going. And I'm not going to be. I don't. The mind doesn't want to be ruled or pushed around by the feelings that come and go. And that's really what the dispassion, that's why it's different than the seclusion. Seclusion means we're, we're not so concerned with sense experience because we're paying attention to this one sense experience. So we're realizing I don't have to have this heightened attention to sounds and to other sensations in the body and to my thoughts. I can seclude and just be aware of breath and whole body and the calm feeling. And now it's like I don't have to be attentive to feeling and perception. Just do what you want, perception and feeling. 
but I'm not going to. And it's really we're kind of removing ourselves, the mind is removing itself from its animal nature. right? In a way, we're, we're realizing the possibility of being a spiritual being. The mind that has some distance from its sense experience, some independence, let's say, from its sense experience, and some independence from feeling tone. And feeling tone really drives the survival mechanism. That's how we survive. It's like things that, I mean, it's imperfect, but things that are dangerous and could lead to death, or at least not reproducing, you know, have an unpleasant feeling. And things that seem to support survival and reproduction and you know all the things associated with survival have a pleasant feeling. You know, I think about my money in the bank, pleasant feeling. I think about financial debt, unpleasant feeling. I think about having food in the fridge, pleasant feeling. Think about not having, you know, thinking about my aging body, unpleasant feeling. Thinking about vigor, pleasant feeling. Right? So it's really it's a mechanism arising out of evolution, feeling tone, to help beings navigate survival. That's really what it is. And so to be a spiritual being means we're, we're realizing, yeah, that's true, and I'm not rejecting it, but the mind can uh, relate to it without being trapped in it. That's the difference. And we have some, there's some real freedom. And we'll talk about where that goes in the, the weeks ahead. So, ready to move on to the second set of four? So, play with them in your meditation. So, when you sit down, you know, memorize. You hopefully memorize the first four. Memorize the second set of four. It will be in the email if you don't have your sheet handy uh, that I'll send out tonight when I get home. What else was I going to send out in that? Oh, yeah, the dictionary. Thanks. <laughs> Maybe I'll write that down right now. Good, so let's just take a few seconds of silence. Let go of the words. Enjoy the peace of the silence. For just a couple more seconds, sensing, if you can, an inner smile and a willingness to recognize an inner happiness for no good reason that's here for no good reason. Nice to be here together with everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.